does life exist on another planet? In this episode of the STEM Space, I talk with Dr. Charity Phillips-Lander, an astrobiologist at Southwest Research Institute in San Antonio, Texas. She studies life in extreme environments on Earth that are similar to environments we see on other planets and moons to help us figure out how to search for life elsewhere. This episode is the audio recording of when Charity joined me on Space Club Career Chats, a weekly broadcast for elementary and middle school students. Everything asked is from questions submitted by students who wanted to know more about her fascinating research, the potential for life on another planet, and how she got this really cool job. You can watch the full video on Vivify's YouTube channel. I hope you enjoy. Hey, I'm Claire. And I'm Natasha. From college roommates to co-founders of Vivify STEM, pull up a seat as we discuss our experiences as aerospace engineers, teachers, moms, program directors, curriculum writers, graduate students, and friends. This is the STEM Space Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Space Club Career Chats. I'm Natasha, part of your mission control, and we have another very exciting guest today. But first, I want to do a shout out to all the teams that are participating in either Mission to Moon or Mars. You guys have been doing an amazing job. And of course, we will have another raffle at the end of this broadcast, so stick around. Okay, so today's guest is Dr. Charity Phillips-Lander. She's an astrobiologist from Southwest Research Institute located in San Antonio, Texas. And she has a couple degrees. So first, a bachelor's in geology a master's in structural geology, and a doctorate from the University of Kansas. All right, let's bring her on. Welcome, Charity. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Natasha? I'm doing great. Um, so it looks like we have you in uh, the office now, right? Yep. Very cool. Is Before we kind of jump in, I'm just curious, is your work mostly like in an office on a computer, or do you also work in a lab? Um, I do a lot of lab work. And I do a lot of field work. So it's actually unusual to be in the office. Oh, very cool. Well, the students have had so many questions um, about like kind of your experiences and the work you do. So let's just jump right in. So first, what got you started in this career? So when I was about eight, I think, I watched this PBS video on volcanoes in Hawaii. And particularly in how the lava would flow underwater and create these pillow lavas, which is what you see in the left-hand picture. And I got super excited by that. And, and I started looking up, like, what do I do to get that job? Oh, cool. <laughs> and so it was like, oh, you have to study volcanoes. And you, so that's geology. And you have to get a PhD and blah, blah, blah. And off I went on that path. And I got to college fully believing that was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And I told, you know, my like academic advisor that and everything. And so if you had asked me if I was going to be in this job, having this conversation with you today, I wouldn't have predicted it. Wow. That's cool though, but that you were just so convinced from this documentary, like it had such an impact on you. And was it just like watching it one time or you would watch it a lot? Like that seems to have such a profound <laughs> impact. I um I actually watched it multiple times. Um, I wasn't allowed to really watch TV growing up outside of like educational content. And I lived in a place where I couldn't really play outside. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that also contributed to me wanting to be outside and do something like that for a job. But yeah, I I lived by PBS, basically. Interesting. Yeah. So another question here is from the Shooting Stars in Wisconsin. As a kid, were you interested in studying extreme life environment? So it seems like, yes, like that kind of like sparked your interest, but it didn't exactly go as you anticipated. Yeah, so I was I was really just focused on like volcanoes and lava and things like that. And I didn't actually really think about how life interacted with volcanoes um, or the environments around volcanoes at all until much later. Hmm. I was well, in school. And I know you have more to tell us about that because I'm really excited to ask you more about kind of what you're doing now. Um, but let's kind of talk some more about this journey. Um, how did you end up choosing then to study extreme environments? We had two teams here ask this question. So in high school, I started reading a lot more about microbiology, including The Hot Zone. It's one of my uh, favorite books. And what's this book about? Um, it's actually about an Ebola outbreak in the U.S. And so the microbe on the screen here is actually um, a, a photo micro, or a, I guess it's a electron micrograph of um, the Ebola virus. Hmm. And so I was like, man, that seems like a really interesting job, hunting for diseases and things like that. And I took a microbiology class in college and the professor tried to convince me to change majors. He was like, you're really good at this. And I was like, if you could find a way to combine this with my love of volcanoes, I would do that for a job. And a few years later in grad school, I ended up taking a class in geomicrobiology and finding out that there were all these great microbes that lived in hot springs associated with volcanoes. And off I went. And so... Here we are. That, that's cool. And okay, so then the next follow-up question here is about how many degrees did you get? So this was like in grad school. So were you getting like your master's when you made that transition? Yeah, I was in the middle of my master's degree. And then um, I actually took a break and worked for a while okay. before I did my PhD. So I worked for an environmental company and I used microbes to clean up like oil spills and things like that. And so it kind of continued to develop that interest. And then when I went back for my PhD, I worked on microbes and hot springs. Do you think it was good to take a break before going into the PhD? Absolutely. Why is that? Um, you just learn a lot by being out in the workforce. It gives you an opportunity to develop new talents and interests and abilities and earn some money that you can put away in a retirement account, you know, which sounds very boring right now, but becomes more important uh, later on. But also, I mean, I had just gotten married and my spouse is in the military. And so we were traveling a lot and having that time to go different places, learn new things, meet new people was really important to everything that I do now. And so you went and got the PhD. Tell us what happened next. Did you go straight into Southwest Research? No, I did two postdocs. So I worked at the University of Oklahoma for three years studying Mars chemistry. Um, 
And that was really because I had realized that the stuff I had done for my PhD was applicable to astrobiology, but I didn't know that community. I wasn't part of the NASA community. I didn't know the funding environment. And so I needed to meet those people in order to be able to work with them. And so I used that as an opportunity to build that network, work with the right people and kind of get myself known. And then I did a second postdoc studying um, snow algae and um, I got really interested in that. And that, again, I applied to astrobiology. I was working for someone in the NASA community and it helped me to build up all my credentials so that when Southwest Research posted a job, I could apply for it and be successful. Very cool. Well, let's dive into what it is you do. So that's our question here. The Planet Travelers in Nevada, what do you do? So broadly, I study, um, we look at environments that we detect on other planetary bodies like Mars. And so if you look at the picture on the left-hand side, near the top, you see all these different planetary bodies. There's like Ceres and Triton, and those are our moons, and, and so is Titan and Enceladus. And then we have, you know, obviously our moon and Mars and Pluto, which are, you know, Pluto is debatable as a planet, but I'm not going to get into that. And we look at the environments that, that we detect there. And one thing that all these bodies have in common is that they have these caves or subsurface void spaces. And so we find those environments and then we look on earth for similar environments. And so if you look on the right hand side, I have a, a lava tube track. So the lava is flowing away from the volcano, the surface of the flow freezes, the lava eventually drains away and it leaves this hole in the ground. And sometimes the roof collapses in and that's what those sort of pit features are. And with that, so we can see those on Mars and we can see something very similar to that on Earth associated with volcanoes. So then I go and study those environments to understand what is the chemistry of those environments, what types of life is there so that we can make predictions about what kinds of things we might find if we were to explore a cave on the moon or Mars or some other planetary body. So it seems like that love for volcanoes sticks with you in your <laughs> current job. Yeah, I love volcanoes. <laughs> That's so cool. Well, what's your favorite part of being an astrobiologist? This is from the Galaxy Nerds in Indiana. So this is a really great question, and I think what I love the most is that there's so much potential for growth in the field, and it's such an exciting question to work on, you know, whether or not we're alone in the universe, how life might arise somewhere else, and, and how it might be similar or different to us. I just, I find it really fascinating and exciting, and it feels bigger than me which I really value. What is your sense, I guess, of life out there? Like, can you put a number to it? Like, is there a good chance that we're going to find life out there? So I would say that, yes, we will find life elsewhere. I don't know where. I don't know how long it will take. But I just think it's statistically improbable that we're alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really exciting to think about. 
Well, then what are your challenges as an astrobiologist? This is from the Martians in California. Also a really good question. Um, you know, life as it arose on Earth is carbon-based. We, we don't have a full understanding of all of the steps from, like, how did we get to our first cell on Earth, you know, to, you know, microbes, which might seem simple, but are actually kind of complicated creatures. Um, and so though that makes it hard to figure out how best to search for life elsewhere. What if it has a completely different underlying biology and it's like silicon-based instead of carbon-based? Or what if the evolutionary pathways are very different? Like, how do we best scope out the search for life elsewhere? And so while I focus on more towards the carbon-based end of the spectrum with a lot of my studies, there's this huge emerging area of astrobiology asking, well, can we imagine life if it was completely different from us biologically, like wasn't carbon-based? What would it look like? How would we search for it? So that's the big challenge the entire community faces. And I think it's a very exciting one because you get to be very creative and imaginative in your job. Wow, that's wild. So how do we define life? Like, how do we know we have found life? That is the $64 million question. (laughs) (laughs) There is a lot of debate on that. Um, I fall into the camp that it needs to be able to replicate itself. But part of our challenge is that we don't all necessarily agree on a definition for life. And that's just so fascinating and really important for kids to hear because they get science from a textbook and they think what I read is facts that are never going to change and this is how the world is. But there's people like you that are behind all the science and you have opinions and you're using your creativity and it's like your perceptions of the world may bias or kind of distort what the actual world is like. So I feel like we get really deep into this, but like the message I have for kids is science is kind of changing um, based on the evidence we have. But how do you see like what words can we tell kids about like the real nature of science and science discovery? So science is both a set of facts, which you need as a good starting framework. Like there are certain rules that as far as we can tell, don't change. And that's really helpful to know what parts of the system you can count on basically not being variables, and then what things you need to tinker with to answer your questions. And that's really the framework of the scientific method. Like, I don't think we always do a great job teaching that in school. I didn't get that until graduate school when I was actually like designing my own experiments. But being able to have those facts and know, you know, a reference framework then allows you to build out with your creativity and imagination. And also science is team-based. So while I have my own set of biases, that govern how I view the world. I work on big teams with people who have completely different perspectives from me, who have different backgrounds and skill sets, and they see the world differently. And by all of us working together, we're able to get closer to the truth. I love that. That's awesome. Okay, so let's keep going with your your work in STEM. 
what are some of the harshest environments you've discovered? Dream Team in Nevada. So um, I've worked in a lot of extreme environments. I've worked in uh, really low pH acidic environments, so more acidic than lemon juice or your stomach acid. Um, I've worked in really hot environments, so we're talking hot enough to cook a steak, and yet we find life living there. Wow. Um, and then, you know, I've worked underground, which has its own set of harshness. It's very nutrient limited. So um, imagine it's kind of like a food desert for microbes. And so they have to work very hard in order to get food to support their life. Um and you can actually see some of the microbes from the caves. So all these sort of brown and white deposits are actually microbes and minerals they precipitated. And then when we bring those samples back from the lab, we look at them under very high powered microscopes. And then you, the picture on the left is actually um, the same area, the sample I collected there some of the microbes that are there. And you can see it's chucky jam full, and yet compared to a lot of environments on Earth, there's a lot less life here. Now looking, I'm thinking about samples. These samples are all from Earth. We don't really, at this point, we don't have samples from a lot of these other planets. I mean, we have samples from the moon. Um, can you talk to me about how you make those discoveries on like Mars? Yeah, so right now, um, what, what we employ is robotic exploration. So Perseverance is a great example, right? So the Mars 2020 rover is going around collecting samples on Mars that we'll bring back to Earth that we can look at with all the same techniques and tools that I have available to me to look at, you know, environments on Earth. Right now, Perseverance is using a limited set of tools that we all argued about and agreed upon in advance to try to pick those best samples based on the chemistry of the sample, uh, whether or not there are organics present, uh, specific types of minerals, things like that. And so up until now, that's mostly what we've done is robotic exploration, and it's been more chemistry focused. We're moving into this new era where you're going to see more and more astrobiology focused missions where we're going to specifically go to search for life and we're going to take tools on those missions to do that work. And so Mars 2020 is a first step towards that, but we're going to see a lot more of those missions in the next decade or two. Dragonfly is a great example. And asking this question, you've touched on this, but what is the main factor you're looking for, um, cosmic defenders in Illinois? So we have like a whole hierarchy of things we look for. Um, so ideally, you know, we would see a cell kind of like we, we see in the pictures here and, you know, it would be moving or it would be dividing or something. And we know not only is there, you know, historically maybe life there, but there was active life at the moment that sample was collected. But outside of that, we look for things like uh, repeating uh, structural units. So like DNA, right? Our DNA mm -hmm. um, basically imprints our entire genetic code. So we're looking for something like that. We look for patterns in the rocks. We look for amino acids, um, 
Uh, pigments like chlorophyll that's in plant leaves also occurs in some microbes. So we look for all those kinds of different factors. And we're looking for multiple things because no one line of evidence, I mean, unless, you know, a Martian popped out and like waved at us, would be strong enough for the scientific community to be like, this is life. So we need a preponderance of evidence. So you're saying we're not going to find the green alien with the buggy eyes? <laughs> Probably not on Mars. Maybe somewhere else. I'll, I'm open to it. All right. Okay. What extreme environment are you working on now? So right now I am working a lot on ocean worlds. So this is like Enceladus and Europa. And so the outside of these moons, so Europa is a moon of Jupiter and Enceladus is a moon of Saturn. Outside, if we were looking at it, it'd be a hard ice shell. But underneath there's this whole ocean, just like there's these whole oceans under like the ice sheets, right? around Antarctica. And so I study um, the life and, and the factors that control the potential for life in these ice sheets. And so one of the past projects I did was actually working on these snow algae, which color the red, the snow, either red or green. And so you can see the individual cells on the left hand side, and then uh, what they look like under the microscope. And then kind of what they would look like if you're just walking around. You can actually wow. see this all over Earth. And um, so I'm trying to better understand, like, if we were to collect a sample of ice from near the surface of one of these icy worlds where there's a subsurface ocean, would we be able to detect evidence of life? Very cool. Before we transition out of your work, any other thoughts you want to share with the students about what you're doing? I mean, I think the key thing is just, um, you know, really don't get stressed out if you don't get everything right the first time. Uh, I didn't go to great schools. I wasn't a perfect student. Find your passion and follow it. I love it. Okay, well, we shared some of your hobbies with the students. And we got some questions. Uh, first, uh, Apollo 18 from Indiana asks, where do you raft? So right now, I primarily go up to River Sport Rapids, which is in Oklahoma City. And that's because some of my family live up there. So I like to go hang out with them. Um, and they actually constructed a whitewater park there. Cool. And that was actually where I learned both whitewater rafting and kayaking. Like I had been on commercial trips before. But like I went to guide school there and everything when I lived there as a postdoc. Um, I actually worked as a raft guide out on the Potomac River um, near D.C. Which one am I looking at here? That's actually uh, on the Potomac. Okay. Yeah, that's up near Harper's Ferry. I wasn't working. That was a day trip fun. for fun. Yeah. Well, this second question cracked me up. Have you ever gotten heat stroke while being outside? I have not. Um, I'm a huge fan of drink lots of water in the field, but I have been with people who have. And I have certainly uh, sustained other injuries in the field. I, I can be a little klutzy. I got to know. Give us like your worst injury. <sighs> worst injury. Um, I severely bruised my back and tore a bunch of skin off of my back. 
Um, because I had a rock give out while I was climbing down into a cave and I yeah. slid and threw my back against one side and my legs and the arms against the other side to stop myself. Was this uh, on the job? Like, were you doing field work or just for fun? Yes. And oh. it was several years ago. Um, but I've never had anything worse than some cuts and bruises. That's scary. But also, I'm intrigued, though. <laughs> so uh, as part of your job, you get to, like, go to caves and actually collect data? Oh, that's cool. So what are some places you've traveled? Um, I have. I've traveled to Albania. That's where um, a lot of some of these photos are. Is that this um, one right here? Yeah. So those are actually bunkers on the beach in Albania. Um Back when Albania was under a dictatorship, they would actually put like military people in these bunkers and they were all littered all over the place in the country. If you go to Albania now, they're like hot dog stands. They've been totally repurposed as other things. It's really amazing. But this was taken like right after it fell. I have, I've gone to Costa Rica. That's where I did my PhD work. Um, I'm going to the Canary Islands next year. Ooh. So excited about that. Yeah. Um, but I've gotten to, to travel around Europe primarily and then Central America Very as cool. well as I've visited all 50 states. So no way. All 50. <laughs> yeah. Some of that was, you know, due to my spouse's career, but yeah. Okay. Well, we got to talk about that because you had several students or teams ask questions about your husband. Um, so they want to know what branch of the military does your husband work? And what was it like being a military spouse? So my spouse was in the Navy. He retired in 2019. Um, the picture there uh, of him in uniform is actually from his retirement ceremony. And so he retired after 20 years. I was with him for 16 of those 20. So he joined the, the military before we met. Being a military spouse is interesting and challenging. I got to travel all over. I got to meet cool people in lots of different places. I have friends just about anywhere I might want to travel, which makes traveling very nice and convenient for obvious reasons. Um, the challenge was that it's very hard to keep a job when you're moving every one and a half to two years because you're starting over. You have to, you know, meet new people, find new jobs, all those kinds of things, make new friends. So that was hard. And in the end, I chose in order to get my PhD to live apart from my spouse for several years in order wow. to make that happen. And that was very hard. In the end, worth it. Yeah. Not going to lie about it being hard. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that because that was definitely a lot of questions that the students had. Okay, well, we're at the end, um, and I just have a couple last questions for you. We call these the rapid fire, so you're gonna, I'm going to give you me 10 seconds for each question. Can you do it? I will do my best. <laughs> All right, first one, if you could go back in time, would you change any decisions you made about your career? Absolutely not. I love it. Just stick there. Okay, which planet do you think has the best chance of having life on it? Uh, not a planet, but I'm voting for Titan, which is a moon. Ooh. All right, kids. Keep an eye on Titan. Do you like what you do? And do you ever get bored? I love what I do. I never get bored. 
do you believe there is water on Mars and there has possibility, I guess, and there have been a possibility of a life source? I know there is water in, on Mars in the subsurface uh, and in the polar caps. I believe, uh, I'll leave the door open for potential past life on Mars. And the students are designing a habitat at the end of this mission on Mars. So it's very important that they are aware of water on Mars because potentially a future colony should be close to these water sources um, to make it sustainable. And I think we know, but have you found life anywhere else? <laughs> Not yet, but I'm working on it. All right. That's awesome. Well, I think all the students should kind of follow your track and see like, and like this community of astrobiology, I just think is so fascinating. And there's just so many new discoveries happening constantly with all these missions that are happening. So thank you for joining us. For and sure. if you could stick around, I would love to share with you what the students have been working on. What'd you think? That's super cool. Uh, and I wouldn't be shocked if they're all working for Apple someday. Right? <laughs> yeah, they have so many creative designs whenever we come up with these challenges. I never know what they're going to do with it. Yeah, I was impressed. Yeah. All right. And and it's also important because you talked a lot about creativity, and that's a big piece of science. So I hope kids can kind of keep on to hold on to that creativity. So as we close our career chat, Charity, any kind of final words you would like to share with our Space Club students? I'm actually really excited with all of the stuff that they're all doing because we're in this place right now where human exploration is also kicking off and will be part of how we search for life elsewhere will be human driven. Mm -hmm. And so all the things that they're doing right now are actually really, really relevant to the kinds of work we need to do to facilitate that. So they're already scientists. I love that. Well, great job this week, students. Um, keep up the good work, and we will see you next week. Thank you.